Sup, y'all. Welcome to. Oh. Sup, but no. <laughs> this is Fungada Podcast. Sup, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of the Pongra Podcast, and Happy New Year. Uh, this is Umer. I'm here with Nana, and we're hoping you're alive and sane during what hasn't been another ridiculous start to the year. Yeah, it has been a while since we've had a new episode, and that is partially because we just, like, as humans, needed a break. Um, you know, making this podcast is a labor of love, but it is a labor nonetheless, and we just need to take some time to relax and refresh so we can come back with more quality content. But the other reason we've been on pause is because there has been a lot going on in the world recently, and some of it has hit very close to home for a lot of the Bhangra circuit. And we are obviously talking about the farmer protests that have been going on across India for months now. Right. And as dancers ourselves, we've seen and have been involved with a lot of these conversations that are happening around the circuit. What are what are the protests about? How to support them? What they mean? What is our responsibility as dancers to the community from which our dance came from? So over the last couple of months, we've been researching and putting together this episode where we'll dive into the protests, the bills that brought them out, and some of the history of India's agricultural economy. Our hope is that this episode provides everyone with a deeper nuance and actually factual-based understanding of what is going on, so we can all have an informed discussion rather than just infographing each other to death. So Umar and I are not experts. We've enlisted the help of Dr. Irfan Nuruddin to delve into what's been going on. Also, as a content warning, we discuss suicide around the 36-minute mark, so heads up in case that's not for you. My name is Irfan. I'm a professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and also director of the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council, which is a think tank here in Washington. So I was born in India, grew up in Bombay, all the way through high school, and then came to the U.S. for college and ended up staying for a PhD and became an academic. I came to the States very soon after the very big economic reforms of the early 1990s that happened in India. And so that kind of focused my intellectual energy on understanding economic development in a way that probably I wouldn't have predicted before. So in case you're listening and don't know what these protests are that we're talking about, let's review. In the summer of 2020, the government of India put forward three interlocking acts that would really be one of the biggest reforms to India's agricultural sector, maybe in the last 20, 30 years, if not longer. These became law in September. And ever since then, there's been a steady drumbeat of protests emanating from a couple of North Indian states in particular, though it is increasingly growing beyond those states. This has come to a head and gotten the attention of the world because of a very large-scale mass demonstration occurring on the streets that lead into the city of Delhi, India's capital. Uh, By some estimates, there's some 200,000 farmers camped out, blocking access into Delhi, right, uh, literally now been there for multiple weeks and by all accounts, uh, ready to stay for the long haul. So some have described it as maybe the largest popular protest occurring anywhere in the world right now. And so really something that we should be paying attention to. In order to understand what the bills are changing, there's a couple of aspects of the system Indian farmers are currently navigating that we've got to understand. The first is what is called a Mandi, which is an agricultural produce market committee. So essentially, In the 1960s, the government established these government public sector purchases of all the produce being produced by farmers. It was not everything that could possibly be grown, but the major crops 
that could be grain, etc. And what the government was doing in the 1960s was sort of harnessing two separate impulses. One was the need to modernize and take advantage of technology, fertilizer, seeds, all that good stuff that scientists, uh, right, at land-grant universities across America produce and sort of say, you can use this to produce a lot more than you ever had been able to produce before. The second was to take all of that produce and turn it into a public distribution system that could ensure that poor Indians were able to purchase that grain, those vegetables, etc., at affordable prices. So think of the government as essentially establishing itself as a major buyer of what farmers produced, and then using that incredible purchasing power to now redistribute through ration shops and the PDS, public distribution system, this to poor people across India. For the farmers, the reason this was a game worth playing is what the government offered them was the second term of art, which is MSP or minimum support price. And what the government did was establish for a certain set of agricultural produce, a flow and said that no matter what, we will pay you at least this for your produce. So the government's trying to incentivize farmers to use the technology that will allow them to produce more. But if you suddenly flood the market with a lot of produce, the prices the farmers get for their products will go down. How is the government going to make sure that the farmers don't lose income as a result of using the new technology? Minimum support price. Okay, so, so far we've got the Monday and we've got minimum support price or MSP. Those two features layered onto the fact that farming's a state subject and therefore that these Mondays were established by state level governments meant that farmers sold only to their state Mondays, not elsewhere. Now, from a broad economic perspective, economists might look at this and say, look, this is really inefficient, right? Why wouldn't the farmers be allowed to sell to whoever is willing to pay them what they want? If you've got this one buyer, it's going to deter private sector investment because there's actually no real incentive to come in and try and play in this market and buy things, etc. So there's plenty of good reasons to suggest that maybe the old system established 60 years ago was ripe for a change. But where the farmers would come back and say is that the reason that they're in the streets isn't because they don't think that things could change. It's because they're not convinced that the government has put in place the supporting policies required for them to make this transition without absolute disaster. So let's say you allow me now to sell my produce to somebody else. Okay, great. Okay. What happens to the Monday? Well, the Monday is predicated on being able to buy enough produce to be able to equip uh, and sell elsewhere. There's a, a volume game. If you can't do enough that, some of these Mondays will shut down because these farmers have got other buyers for their produce. If the Monday starts shutting down, other farmers are going to have a harder time uh, finding buyers for their produce. If there's no minimum support price, then you've got small farmers negotiating with large, you know, multinational agricultural buyers. That's not a negotiation that's going to work in their favor. So what's interesting over here is that the government is saying, look, exactly what you know, Irfan just articulated as the two big concerns are not concerns at all. We're not going to do anything about the Mondays. We're not taking away MSP. But the farmer's response is that you can destroy the Monday system, you can make the MSP irrelevant simply by allowing for this competition. There's a couple of other elements over here. One of the other is a farm storage bill, right? It allows for the buyers to store the produce and in large quantities. Imagine giant silos of grain 
And what the farmers are afraid of is that this is also going to be play in the hands of large private sector actors who will then use that volume to be able to drive down the prices. The, and so what the farmers are basically saying is reform, not necessarily a bad thing, but we need assurances that we are not just going to be thrown to the wolves and asked to fend for ourselves because in the fight between us, small farmer and massive agribusiness, we are going to lose. And if we lose, we lose our land, we lose our farms, we lose our lives, our livelihoods, etc. So I think that's one way to think about what's at stake over here from the perspective of some of these farmers. We've been talking a lot about how a Monday functions because one of the aspects of these bills is that they allow for interstate commerce. This may sound like a good thing because it increases the options farmers have for who they can sell their crops to. But as Irfan said, that increase in competition among buyers could lead to a collapse of the Monday system. In a world without the Monday, the other buyers that would fill the void are mostly private corporations. And what kind of danger is a farmer in if they're negotiating with these companies? We're going to take an example of PepsiCo, which is a major purchaser of crops, including Indian ones. Pepsi buys potatoes. India's the largest potato seller to Pepsi, but Pepsi has got exact dimensions. Your potato has to be this large or it's not good enough for us kind of thing. The issue over here is not that I don't know what I can sell and I don't know what I can bring to the market. It is that the moment I've got these private actors in there, the market itself has changed. And for a lot of farmers, this is going to just be really dislocating because it means what happens to the stuff I want to sell if Pepsi doesn't want to buy it? Because now the Mondays that I was relying on have less of a market for themselves and can no longer buy this stuff. But there's other issues at work over here. It is simple bargaining power, right? If at the end of the day, you're a private buyer for this product. You're not bound by the MSP, right? You can offer your price. You can also offer other incentives, right? You might say, hey, I'll pay you less than the MSP is, but I'll give you credit. I'll give you access to the newest technology. I'll give you access to the newest fertilizer, etc." Think of that very innocuous sounding private sector actor comes in and says, hey, uh, you want the newest technology? I'll give you credit, etc." What happens if the farmer can't make good on his loan? The farmers are arguing, unless we have protections that our land will not be used as collateral, that we will lose our entire livelihood, this is a really dangerous game to play. The other thing is, we should be clear that this is a set of policies that is most directly relevant to farmers in Punjab, Haryana, some parts of Uttar Pradesh, etc. It is not necessarily relevant in large parts of the country that grow very different produce and different kind of agricultural markets. And farmers will point to the reforms, exactly the same reforms that the central government is passing right now, that have been attempted in other states and will say, that doesn't look very good. Why would we want that? Those farmers aren't doing very well at all. <laughs> what happened in other states in which a similar sort of reform was attempted, and Bihar is a classic example, is that the number of mandis that became viable shrank. So Bihar went from having some 9,000 mandis to about 1,000 mandis a decade uh, later. And that's partly because if some of these farmers in a particular village or set of villages says, hey, I'm getting a better deal, however you want to define that deal, from a private buyer, that particular mandi no longer is viable. And remember, the mandi is not being done without any economics as well. You pay it a tax over there, so it's a revenue generator for the state. If the state can't generate enough revenue from that particular Monday, it has no incentive to keep the Monday going, etc. 
Now, if the number of mandis begins to shrink, a farmer in an area that is no longer serviced by a mandi, but whose produce is either not good enough, not of the right quality, or is not satisfied with the price being offered by the private buyer who now has taken over, what is he to do? If you're listening and you're in America, it might be easy to understand this predicament if you look at what's been going on with our postal service. USPS is a government service meant to serve everyone equally and at a fair price. When private shipping companies like UPS, FedEx, and DHL increase competition with aggressive pricing and their vast infrastructure, the Postal Service can't afford to keep as many offices open due to less business. That's not an issue if you live in a big city with lots of business. You probably live around the corner from a FedEx or a post office. But what if you live in a rural town? What if you have no post office anymore and you can't afford UPS? Or is the post office no longer going to have the resources they need to efficiently carry out other public duties? This is basically what happens when Mondays start shutting down, and this is what farmers in Bihar lived through as they got forced into doing business with private companies with little negotiating power and few other options for where to sell their crops. In a big state like Punjab, not having a couple of Mondays in the near vicinity potentially makes it impossible for me to get my stuff to the Monday. So the fact that a Monday might exist 50 miles away is completely irrelevant to my economics. So the part of the issue over here is not, we don't have to get rid of Mondays to make Mondays less of the dominant player in the agricultural economy than they currently are. And if you're the farmer, it is not much comfort for me to know that some parts of my state might continue to have Mondays if my particular Monday is no longer active, because then I'm still stuck having to negotiate with the single buyer that is a big agribusiness, the big contract buyer. And so history itself seems to be against uh, these laws. Now, be clear, I'm not suggesting that the laws are inherently bad. I'm not suggesting that the reforms shouldn't be tried. But agriculture employs some 50% of India's labor force. That's hundreds of millions of people. What happens to them if they can no longer farm? And unless we can answer that question, we cannot get them to buy into large-scale reforms. So let's talk about how these laws came to be. When did these changes get implemented? And when can we expect them to take effect? Why did the protests gain movement in November, even though these bills were passed over the summer? I mean, look, if you were in the farming sector that was affected or thought to be affected, you were paying attention to this all along. But, you know, We've all been a bit distracted, right? There's a little pandemic thing. Uh, there's the you know, attempted coup that we're still living through of a presidential election in the United States. But really in India, I think what it is maybe is a much more local reason, which is these are working farmers and much of the fall is harvest season. They're busy. So while there were protests, while the political parties and opposition uh, forces and the unions representing many of these farmers had been very vocal in voicing their objections all the way back in the summer, even after September when they formally became law. It was really only in November when the farmers were freed from their land to be able to come and mount the mass demonstration that we are now witnessing. And so my guess is, you know, some combination of the visual spectacle of 200,000 people on the streets, plus the rest of us now finally freed of the election happening in the United States, being able to focus on things happening elsewhere. That has resulted in us paying attention to it now, but this is not something that's new. 
It has arguably been percolating now for at least the last six to seven months, and some would argue for much longer. So for the farmers that are directly affected by these laws, it is life-changing. The government would say life-improving, <laughs> right? But life-improving is still life-changing. And for farmers who are worried about their existence, it's scary. And so you should think about this broad thing as, it's not like there was a moment over here where the law was passed and everything is now different. It was a law was passed without adequate consultation that got a lot of farmers really worried about what was coming down the pike and whether they would ever have a moment at which to roll it back. I think they saw this as their last ditch effort to do that. That last point there about there not being adequate consultation with the farmers about the bills is kind of troubling. India is supposed to be the world's largest democracy, and yet not taking the people's dissent into account doesn't feel particularly democratic. Is there some way to explain how and why these bills were passed quickly and with little input? I'll try and be charitable and then I'll be <laughs> less charitable. The charitable explanation is that, again, this is COVID. India is in the midst of a pretty dramatic fight against the pandemic, the second most cases anywhere in the world after the United States, obviously significant lockdown. So even parliament and the kinds of normal consultations that one would expect have been harder to do. The government would also probably argue that to call these completely a surprise is not fair, that these have been discussed in parliamentary committee, expert commissions have mooted these sorts of laws for 20 years, right? This is not like they pulled it out of their hats. It has been in the broader ecosystem. It has been in the, the fodder of think tank reports and government reports for decades. So the charitable explanation is that the government saw a opportunity to pass laws that have been long been advocated by certain academics and researchers as being good for agriculture and therefore for the Indian economy. Uh, it was in the summer where it didn't have other legislative priorities and it chose to make this a priority. Okay, that's the government's uh, prerogative. The negative is really that this is part and parcel of how this government, the Modi uh, government, has really made big announcements uh, over the last few years. Some of your listeners will remember 2016, when the day after, in fact, Donald Trump won the election over here, the Modi government announced what was called demonetization overnight deeming 90 plus percent of India's active currency as no longer legal tender. In 2019, we had the site of, in an August of 2019, the revocation of Kashmir's status as a state, abrogation of constitutional provisions, again, overnight, no real broader discussion. Later that fall, the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens, again, big, huge policies without the kinds of parliamentary discussion and debate that we would imagine being necessary in a functioning democracy, without the sort of civil society consultations, etc. My guess is that there would have been a lot of opposition on the part of a lot of farmers who saw these uh, rules as being scary, frightening, bad ideas. But if the government had really tried very, very hard to go bend over backwards to say, let's have consultations, let's have hearings, let's have discussions, they would have inoculated themselves or against that is one of the major criticisms leveled by many, which is you can't make such big laws without any discussion uh, whatsoever, without any parliamentary debate whatsoever. It's a bad look for democracy. This government, frankly, doesn't seem to care about such criticisms. And so, unfortunately, it has acted the way it has. 
But I will say that it muddies the analysis of these laws. How much of it is about the laws themselves? How much of it is because the government doesn't enjoy any reservoir of trust with the affected communities who just don't think of themselves as having been listened to, having been consulted for something that is so central to their lives? Are they going to get a full repeal? I don't see that. It'll be a tremendous loss of face for the government to repeal three acts that have been passed by parliament. But are there ways to find compromise to make sure that the farmers feel like they're being heard uh, absolutely? And they have to because the alternative is further divisiveness of a country that is already pretty fractured. And the rhetoric that is now being put out on Twitter and all of that by pro-government channels of referring to these farmers as Khalistanis, as anti-nationals, etc., is corrosive of democracy. So we know what the bills do. We see how this was implemented poorly and some of the ramifications. But what's the goal? The farmers are attempting to repeal the bills with the protests, which is definitely something that will help their plight. But is that enough? Especially knowing now from Irfan that a full repeal doesn't seem very likely. Well, honestly, no. There's so much else going on. There's the debt crisis, the water crisis, environmental damage from all the farming and chemicals and pesticides, global warming, a mental health suicide crisis. It's nuts. To understand all that, we need to go back to the 60s during India's Green Revolution. So the Green Revolution is interesting because we have now come to think of the Green Revolution as this moment in which India was food insecure and it changed everything. The science, the history of this is actually much more complicated as all histories tend to be. The real issue was that India was at the time importing wheat from the United States. And the US agricultural scientists that were uh, developing a lot of the models around food used wheat, which is a big part of the US diet, but in fact, not a large part of the Indian diet, as part of their major calculations for understanding food security. And so there was a huge concern in the 50s and 60s that countries like India were going to be food insecure. And this was part of a much larger debate happening in developmental circles, the notion being that the population of these countries was going to be too large, it was going to exceed the carrying capacity of the earth, and that the, you know, we'd all we'd have massive famines, uh, etc. And so the US government actually put a lot of pressure on the Indian government to reform and accept a lot of the fertilizers and seeds that were being developed in American land-grant institution labs, etc. This is not to suggest, in fact, that there wasn't a tremendous amount of good done by that Green Revolution, but it is not quite as simple as saying that it took a country that was on the verge of starvation and made it food abundant. What it did was that it actually changed the mix of produce that was being produced. So if there is a line to the Green Revolution to today, it is that the main seeds that were provided under the Green Revolution in the 50s and 60s, or rather in the late 60s, was for wheat and rice, which the scientists thought would provide a staple for the diets of poor people around in developing countries. But that wheat and rice displaced other produce that farmers had traditionally grown. And so, in fact, some have argued that India went from being food abundant in the things that people actually ate to being food abundant in the stuff that we didn't actually eat, like wheat, and food dependent or import dependent on a lot of the legumes and vegetables and all of that that were actually part of the major part of the diet. So part of the trick over here is that 
The history of the world tells us that no country advances to a modern economy without figuring out what India's, you know, 40% of the labor force in agriculture is not sustainable for India's ambitions and for the 21st century. In the United States, at the turn of the century in 1900, some 40% of the U.S. workforce got its primary income from agriculture. By 1945, that had dropped. Today, it's less than 2%. But all of those people who were once part of the land went elsewhere. They moved to cities, they moved to towns, they moved to industry, they moved to manufacturing, and then eventually to service sector kinds of positions, right? There was plenty of dislocation. This is not exactly pleasant, but it occurred over decades and very much with a vibrant economy that could absorb all of this new labor uh, that was being freed from the land. Where, where 200 million ex-farmers going to go in India's current economy? There is no manufacturing sector. There are no public universities that can absorb uh, all of these people in the way that were built in the United States. Even if you look at China, which is the most recent parallel, which starting in the 1970s radically reforms its agricultural sector, it does so by making the district level a massive economic actor by incentivizing the production of manufacturing plants, etc. But India leapfrogged manufacturing. We went right to services. We became the back office of the world, call centers, etc. You can't absorb 200 million people into call centers who have very limited education. So I think one way to think about this is that in 30 years, right, when we are looking back at this moment, we might really look back at it and say, hey, these were reforms that were long overdue and that they really heralded a complete transformation of the Indian economy. And yes, now India looks like a modern economy with far fewer people tied to the land, far fewer people trying to eke out a subsistence living from a patch of dirt kind of thing. But that should not blind us to the fact that transition, and that's the best case scenario, that best case transition is still likely to result in massive suffering for lots of people who suddenly can't make a living because there is no alternative, because the government isn't providing them an insurance system, there is no social security, they lose their land. And then this culture. Gandhi famously said, India lives in its villages, which is a powerful phrase for reminding us that this is not just, hey, you lost your job, go find another job. <laughs> These are parts of land that have been handed down for generations. This is the lives that people know. This is what they understand. And so maybe we should, with all respect to our economist friends, not be so callous about the fact that this is not just an economic transaction, but deeply cultural, deeply rooted, and really, really scary for very real people who are trying to think about what does that alternative future look like? Yes, lots of farmers that I talk to when I take my students at Georgetown, for instance, to India, are very clear that they don't want their children to have their own lives. They aspire for their kids to have a, a different life than the ones that they had and than the ones that their fathers had, etc. And if the economic reforms are part of that, my guess is there's plenty of support among that. But they're also not fools. And they also realize that simply flipping a switch and saying, hey, now you compete in the 21st century and guess what? Free trade is going to make your lives better. That, that it doesn't work quite so simply either. So it's complicated over here. And I think there's a holistic view to this that the government talks about but hasn't acted on. And maybe if the farmers saw all of those pieces together, there'd be less of an uproar than there is currently. So really what's ironic about this is that these are not laws that are 
arguably going to make the farmers who are really worse off. I mean, take Bihar, where farmers are a lot worse off than farmers in Haryana and Punjab, but where these exact reforms were put in place uh, 15 years ago, with very little to show for it over the past 15 years. So I think if you're a Punjabi farmer, <laughs> you might be looking at this and saying, what exactly are you trying to fix over here, given that if you are going to be a farmer, you'd much rather be a farmer under the Mandi MSP Punjab system than a farmer in one of these other places where you've got all sorts of problems, right? Uh, Maharashtra with 40,000 pharmacists over the last decade, et cetera, et cetera, right? All these garish statistics. So that's one. Is that I think the fact is this is not a nationwide set of laws. It is the laws will apply nationwide, but they affect most directly farmers in the two most agriculturally productive states in the country, where farmers enjoy much higher levels of standard of living than their counterparts in other states. But here's the bigger issue that I think we are right to answer, which is that is farming as it is currently constituted sustainable going forward? And the answer to that, I would argue as a complete non-farmer, grew up in Bombay city boy, right, is probably not as it currently is. But it's not about the inability of farmers to make a living. It is that the whole system is against them. We have the lousiest infrastructure there can be. So, so much of farm produce never makes it to market because the roads are terrible, the trains are terrible, the, the produce dies, rots on the way to market. We have no coal chain storage facilities commensurate with the 21st century economy that allows for vegetables and other sort of produce to be preserved and kept. We have a banking system that is on the verge of bankruptcy, especially the public sector banks, where farmers and poor farmers would need to get access to it. We have a very limited rural education system to equip young Indians growing up in rural areas with the kinds of 21st century skills required to function in a 21st century economy. So there's an ecosystem over here that makes farming hard. But to start by saying that the solution to all of that is to take away the one, the price stability that you have, to take away the relationships that you have in terms of your purchases, as if that's going to solve all those other problems, that seems backward to me. Is it one part of a much, of a very complicated puzzle? Yeah, but what the farmers I think are saying is that how come we're not talking about all that other stuff? Why aren't we hearing about how you're going to make sure that if commodity prices collapse, I'm not going to be bankrupted overnight, right? What guarantee are you going to give me over there? Because at the end of the day, you're asking me to trade some stability away for a lot more variability in exchange for maybe the promise of a higher income. But all I'm seeing is downside risk over here. And I think, let's say that all of us agree that what we want to do, that the biggest challenge for India today is to reform its agricultural sector. Regardless of what we think about these laws, the political economy question is, how do we get farmers to buy into it? Because if you can't get farmers to buy into it, you don't get successful reform. And then I think the answer is that we get them to buy into it by assuring them that we understand and hear their concerns and have solutions that are human-centered, that are focused on their problems uh, at hand. We don't get them to buy in by simply telling them that they don't understand the 21st century economy and they should listen to the smart economists sitting in the cities who clearly know how they can fix agriculture for India. 
Again, with much respect to those economists, that's not a winning argument for these farmers. There's no reservoir of faith and trust to tap into over here and say, hey, look, we know we've done this well over here. Let us do it for you. And if you don't have that, then you're faced with 200,000 farmers on the street. 50 farmers have died during these protests, right? Uh, I mean, again, you know, India sometimes boggles the imagination because all these numbers are so insanely large. And at some point, the numbers don't mean anything any longer. But if there had been any protests happening in the United States in which 50 peaceful protesters had died of cold starvation uh, simply because they were demonstrating for their democratic civil liberties, it would be the greatest scandal of the, our time. And in, right now, we don't even talk about that. We're, we're sitting here doing a sort of a complex chess game as if, you know, we fix this and yeah, so many, so many farmers might be pushed into desperation and so many more might kill themselves, but wouldn't that be good for the economy, <laughs> right? Uh, it's a little cavalier, not, I'm suggest, not suggesting that you are or that I am or that anyone else listening is, but I think we really have to grapple with the raw emotion that is on the streets right now and just really say, if we take that raw emotion sincerely and say, let's listen to these people whose lives are directly affected by this and say, why is it that you seem to be so concerned about laws that we think are going to be good? That is the humility required on the part of the government to get to the outcome that maybe we all want. But simply telling them that they're Khalistanis, they're anti-nationals, right? They're simply against India. That is not humility. That is a hubris, that is an arrogance that unfortunately uh, I think is counterproductive to democracy right now. The laws that are being protested right now are not without major consequences, but they are part of a much larger problematic picture of the Indian economy, the government's implementation of economic policies, and how the system in which farmers exist is stacked against them, and it has been for a really long time. That's why these laws are drawing such an emotional reaction and such strong protests. They feel like another addition to the long list of crises farmers already have to contend with. Things like the water crisis in many Indian states. This is the big crisis of India's agriculture that I think we need to be talking about a great deal more, uh, which is that the groundwater situation in India is devastated. And Punjab, which by all rights should be water abundant, has drawn down on its groundwater tables dramatically over the last 40 years. It has been exacerbated by us giving all sorts of subsidies on electricity, right? So in states like Punjab, where wheat and rice require a lot of water, the subsidies given to farmers allowed them to have very cheap electricity, to install much more powerful pumps to go deeper and deeper to suck out that water. And eventually you dry up the water table. And so we've got a crisis looming in Punjab that has already hit in other parts uh, of the country in Karnataka, in the city of Bangalore has been officially declared as essentially dry. They've tapped their groundwater completely. And in states like Maharashtra, where I grew up, right, the site of tankers of water being used to deliver water to farmers and to people for drinking in villages has become a yearly occasion uh, because of this. So we can talk about credit markets and we can talk about Mondays and all of that, but really, if you want to help farmers in India, you try and figure out how to actually get, you know, much better water management systems in place, much better canal systems in place so that uh, they can actually make a living uh, over here. 
the environmental damage done over the last 50 years makes it impossible for them to grow the product. Then, with this looming water crisis coupled with droughts, floods, and everything else wrought by global warming, farming is way harder. With the lack of that income and nowhere else to turn, we're seeing a dramatic suicide crisis. National Crime Records Bureau data showed that in 2019 alone, 10,281 farmers and agricultural workers committed suicide, making up 7.4 of all suicide-related deaths in India that year. As high as that number is, this is down from around 18,000 farmer suicides in 2004. So this is a problem the agricultural economy and Indian government have had on their hands for a very long time. Many argue that this is largely caused by severe indebtedness, the inability to pay back their debts. Uh, farming is always in a bit of a credit debt cycle, right? I mean, you need capital so that you can put the seed in the ground and fertilize it and take care of it. And you only get the money back on the back end once you can find a market for what you have. It doesn't require much to go wrong for that equation to fall apart. And the variability of India's monsoons, a couple of really bad droughts over the last few years, and I should say all of this likely to get even worse because of climate change, has meant that a lot of farmers have find themselves on the wrong side of loans that they have sort of just simply think that it's going to be impossible for them to pay back. And so we have, I think, a confluence of both real economic hardship that makes people quite desperate and a complete hopelessness about prospects for their lives and for their families' lives uh, that makes them see no alternative but taking the ultimate step of, of suicide. And I would also contextualize this in the context of a really changing India, right? If When I go back to Bombay, it, there are parts of it that are exactly the way I left it in 1992 when I came to college. And there are other parts of it that are completely transformed. I mean, you know, modern gleaming skyscrapers, the fanciest restaurants, the fanciest clubs. The juxtaposition of India's poverty and India's wealth has always been marked, quite marked. Now imagine it from that perspective, right? Where televisions are beaming into your homes, however humble, the images of what a good life looks like. Why can't I also have this? And instead I'm faced with a crushing debt that I see no chance of ever escaping. So I say this because I worry that sometimes we talk about this farmer suicide epidemic and use it almost like a bludgeon, right? Clearly, the economics is bad, right? Farmers are desperate, but not all desperate people kill themselves, thankfully. And there's something even more toxic that I think we have to be willing to talk about, which is why is it that this, from a societal perspective, is allowed to occur without a massive intervention in terms of mental health resources for people around the country, uh, it feels to me like we're just grasping and missing out on the big question over here, but it's a, it's truly a tragedy. If we look at just the current protests, things definitely don't look good. But looking at the bigger picture of the Indian agricultural sector, things look dire. Like we said at the beginning, many people, ourselves included, struggle to figure out what can be done. What is the most effective way to show support? What do protesters need? Is it funds for things like blankets and meals? Or is it political pressure? What can people living outside India do? What should people living outside India do? These are profound questions and I'm, I'm going to honor them by you know, trying to 
answer them as honestly as I can, but, but without pretending like I have the answers to them, right? I mean, let's start over here, which is that I think we shouldn't discount the value of providing a blanket to somebody. And I say that because when I think about what's happening right now, I want to think about this fundamentally as Indian citizens exercising their democratic right to protest in a peaceful, non-violent manner. And in the same way that I was inspired and did however little I could, uh, however much I could, you know, though it felt very little, to support BLM protests around the country over here, um, it is not for me to solve the farmers' problems. That's not what they're asking for. What they're asking for, I think, is something much more human, which is to be seen, to be heard, right, and uh, for solidarity. And so I think the expression of solidarity in whatever form, and that I will say that goes to using your soapbox, right, this particular platform, that's powerful. And uh, it is, you know, I think we shouldn't be so self-indulgent and say, look, if we're not doing something bigger, we can't sing help repeal these laws, it's not worth doing. It is worth doing. Uh, partly because it allows for the farmers to retain their agency. It's still about them. It is about them doing it. And if we can do something to make it slightly easier for them to do what they're, they're wanting to do. Beyond that, I do think we need to be thinking about our role as citizens in the United States, about asking what is it that the US government, uh, which itself has got a slight democracy problem right now, but with any luck, that's getting slightly better, at least at the very top. I want to just say that if you think about the US-India relationship, it is one that is going to be a pretty formative relationship for the world in the next 30 years, right? One way or the other, the India-US relationship is seen as a strategic relationship of critical importance. And if you think of it in that manner, then the question to ask is, are there levers that the US government needs to be encouraged to push to defend democratic freedoms in India? So when Pramila Jayapal, a sitting congresswoman, is insulted by India's foreign minister who cancels a meeting because he refuses to be in a room with her because she had asked awkward questions about Kashmir, that's problematic, right? And I think we as you know, concerned members of the diaspora should be telling our members of Congress, our senators, our representatives, hey, when it's appropriate, without being all high and mighty, because Americans can do that way too often, ask the hard questions about the treatment of Muslims in India, about the treatment of Sikhs in India. Ask why it is that there are pro-government bots pirating a line of referring to Sikhs as Khalistanis, simply because that they're protesting right now. So. There are a number of other channels. Again, that's the hard work of democracy. It's not glamorous, it's not big, but I think it's important. The protests in Delhi are now in their seventh week. The longer they go on, the more dangerous it's getting as temperatures drop and tensions are rising. On the other hand, more and more farmers from all across India are showing up to take part every week. The protests and the history behind them are much more complicated than they seem on the surface. We hope this conversation has cleared up misunderstandings, answers some questions, and makes you feel better equipped to engage in a dialogue of what is going on and why it's going on. A massive thank you on our part to Dr. Irfan Nuruddin for sitting down with us and having this honestly pretty fascinating conversation. There will be a link in the show notes to his website where you can find more of his work on democracy and public policy in both India and the U.S. 
Also be sure to check out the website for the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council. They have some very cool blog posts, including one on these protests. We've also included a link where you can find the contact information for your elected officials if you live in the United States, and a link to an organization called Save Indian Farmers, which works to raise awareness for the farmer suicide epidemic while working on projects that help victims, families, and other farmers build a sustainable means of living. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Bangarda Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser, as that really helps others find the podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all of them at the Bangarda Pod. If you want to know what else is going on in the podcast world, sign up for our newsletter and join our Discord server to get exclusive content you won't get anywhere else. There will be links to all of those in the show notes. 